0: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast. The podcast is sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. And I'm Mary Beth Gassman, and I serve as the executive director of the Proctor Institute, and I'm also a professor at Rutgers University. I'm really excited to be here today with Trina and Tina Fletcher. Welcome, my friends. So, I'm excited because I asked you to come on the podcast because um, as you know, uh I uh wrote this article uh about you for uh Forbes.com and uh yeah, in the article I tried to um take a look at your individual stories and also to to link them to um uh, the um journey of black women as they pursue phd's and possibly uh, you know the professoriate and uh it was really exciting because the article got so much reaction and uh, probably more uh, impressions than anything I've ever posted on Twitter. And my LinkedIn was blowing up with stories from other people who wanted to tell me their journeys, which because they were so inspired by your journeys. And also lots of people who said that they shared it with everybody at their company across all different uh uh, businesses and and uh areas because it was it was such a meaningful and inspiring story what um what did you think about that
1: i think for for me, it was interesting because some of the people who were responding of course weren't in our immediate circles. people who have known us our entire lives kind of know our journey, but it was really interesting to have people, uh, specifically women and women of color, and some women not of color, reach out and ask if they could talk to me about, you know, PhD programs. I've had several students (laughs) reach out to me and ask for more information about my process. And just, you know, some women have said, you know, I never considered a PhD, but you know, reading your story, I'm inspired now to consider that journey. Like I know it's possible for me. So that was really surprising because I I just hadn't thought about our story in that way.
2: Yeah. And I would just add that um, very similar to Tina, I've had individuals uh, within the institution that I work for uh, reach out, um, you know, asking for one-on-one conversations or to speak at you know, maybe one of their organization uh, meetings coming up. Um, I've had a, a founder of an ed tech company reach out to me um, within the last couple of days saying that he would like to talk to get some insight around um, you know diversity efforts within his organization. And I think uh, the biggest thing was get, getting a bunch of text messages saying that the president, um, Mark Rosenberg, uh, was mentioning my story at the university's town hall meeting and, uh, you know, not just mentioning it, but giving details of what we shared. And so it really speaks volumes to how important it is to be able to be vulnerable in some cases and talk about different challenges and experiences that, um, you know, folks go through but contribute towards your your success and, and long-term development as, as we've experienced.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And I want to go a little deeper into your background, but just for everyone listening, I just, it would be really helpful if you could each talk about just kind of what you're doing right now, kind of where you are. And, and Trina, why don't you begin?
2: Absolutely. So I'm currently a tenure track professor at Florida International University, a part of the newest school or department. In the College of Engineering and Computing, it's called Succeed, and we fo- well, we focus on engineering and computing education research. And so, um, you know, I got my PhD from Purdue University a few years back, and decided to uh, be a founding faculty member of this new school. And it's it's been it's been great, it's been amazing working with my colleagues. We're a very diverse department. We have a diverse student body, and uh, as of this fall, I actually have three new. PhD students, and they are all Black identifying women. So it's a very exciting time um, for us at FIU as we continue to grow in advance um, DEI efforts. So that's what I'm doing full-time and part-time. I do a lot of things with Tina, uh, which I'm sure we, we may get into, but Tina and I are very passionate about education and also investing in real estate. So we do some other things um, in our spare time.
1: Great. And Tina? Well, I have much less spare time. (laughs) I'm a fourth year PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania in the education policy department. And so I am, you know, in that dissertation process. And that's kind of what I do every day, uh, working on my uh, dissertation, which is focusing on Black teachers and their experiences with licensure exams. I'm looking specifically at the Praxis exam, which is administered by the Education uh, Testing Services in New Jersey. And so that's most of what I do every day. But as Trina said, we find our way into other (laughs) things. And we're really passionate about education, specifically in our home state of Arkansas. And so a lot of my spare time when we're not uh, investing in real estate is spent on working with teachers around the country, so I've worked with over a hundred teachers in nine states and the District of Columbia on their licensure exams and that's something that I'm extremely passionate about is making sure um, black teachers but also teachers from uh, other underserved backgrounds have access to the resources they need to be successful on their their exams.
0: Thank you for sharing and so for everybody listening um these are just you know two really talented. Women who I think uh, what from from my interaction with them, you can see how passionate uh, they are about making change and and which is something we 'll talk about a little bit uh, as we move along in this podcast so you you grew up in in Arkansas, and um, i'd love to know a little bit more about um, your mom and you talked about her when I interviewed you for the article, um, you know really remarkable woman. And I'd love to know more about her and how she supported you along your journey.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's so, so Our mom, you know, she was, you know, eight months pregnant on her 21st birthday with us. She, you know, she didn't have an opportunity to uh, go to college because, you know, obviously she made us a priority and was, uh, you know, working, you know, jobs prior to having us. And, you know as you get older you start to really put all the pieces of the puzzle together of what her life really may be like any of us you know as we learn more about our parents and things like that but my mom was the oldest of four girls and you know during a time where things were very interesting for um for people of color especially black people in the south and so uh you know Opportunities to go to college weren't even presented the way that they are now, and we know there's still gaps that exist now, as we mentioned in the article, for women and people of color to advance their um, pursue higher education. And so, with my mother, I think there were some experiences that she had and things that she saw um, as a you know someone in their early 20s that she just wanted to make sure we had better. And I I mentioned in the in the article around her experiences working in industry, um, you know, as an hourly employee and then finally working her way up to a salary position, but you know, never never making over thirty-five, forty thousand dollars um a year and and being smart enough to recognize that she was being overlooked for promotions, for trainings and and things like that. So she, you know, had folks that were really caring for her in those spaces, but she also saw some of the discriminatory practice that were going on. So I believe that, you know, what happened once we were, you know, at home and in 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 the little time that we had together, because she worked so much overtime, she just made sure that Tina and I and our younger sister valued our education. And she also recognized that sports kept kids out of trouble, right? And off the streets. So we were involved with softball from like eight to fourteen and then Tina started to to get involved in cheerleading and beta club and I was doing AAU basketball and then a high school idea of basketball and Tina was involved with tennis and we did some other things as well. So that is all thanks to my mother. And, um, and I wouldn't say unfortunately, but if you were to look at all of my great grandmother's, um, grandchildren, um, very few of us pursued higher education, myself, Tina and my little sister Taisha being, Three of the very few, and so I think that speaks volumes to the role that my mother played in our lives.
0: Thank you, thank you so much for for sharing all that. You know, um, you you uh, can imagine because I've talked publicly about my mom as well that um, mothers are just so important to me. I think they they really can um, make the difference in. Uh, in your journey you know, along the way. So I appreciate you sharing that. And another thing I'm wondering about, I'm assuming and I'm hoping that you had some you know, remarkable teachers or mentors along the way. I mean, I'm a firm believer in that none of us get where we are without so much support and, um, and help. And it can come from all different corners. And I was just wondering, um, did, you, did you have amazing teachers
1: and mentors, uh, either of you who helped you? Um, so I will say, I love what Trina said about our mom. And it made me think of our family in general. Um, and I will say that we come from a very large family. So our great grandmother had 10 children, and each of them on average had Three or four children. So we have a come from a big, a very big family. And they all in their own way kind of supported our efforts, even though they may not have known how or had the resources. Um, But because we're from a small town, I'll transition into teachers. You know, the, the the handful of black female teachers, because there were no black male teachers in our district K through 12. So when Trina and I were in school, neither one of us had a black male teacher. But the handful of black female teachers that were in the district were usually like, you know, friends of the family or, you know, my favorite teacher, the teacher who was... Uh, I mean, I wrote about her in my PhD application. Uh, Miss Payne lived right by my great grandmother. So <laughs> um, that's how close we were in the town. But she was a civics teacher. And I just remember, I can see it as I sit here in my chair talking to you all. I can see Miss Payne at the front of the classroom teaching. And it was just so profound to me to see a Black woman talking about government, it was just so odd to me. I was like, wow, like, how does she know all of these things? You know, I was just so impressed. And from that day moving forward, I fell in love with politics. I fell in love with government. Um, I went on to study political science. I was the only black woman uh, to earn a political science degree uh, in 2008 from the University of Arkansas. And again, talking about teachers, Miss Payne was literally the driving force behind me deciding to teach government and go into politics and all of these things. Um, But I do have to mention one other, two more teachers um, who weren't Black. And I think it's so important to recognize that you can be inspired and mentored and motivated by, you know, teachers who may not necessarily look like you. My first grade teacher, Christy Olson, who recently retired, um, she and her husband, Dean, who are, you know, proud conservative (laughs) Republicans are, you know, two of the best people that, you know, and I know Trina, you know, had a relationship with them as well. And I was really good friends with their, and still am good friends with their daughter Ashton. Um, They kind of were a part of our village. And so growing up, you don't know that you have these differences in views and values maybe, but um, Donna Bird, who was my fourth grade teacher and Christy Olson were two women that would not allow me to let what was going on at home, because we had some challenging things going on at home, um, but they would not allow anything outside of school impact what I was capable of doing in school. And so I was really lucky to have teachers. I think periodically, first grade, fourth grade, Ms. Payne in the eighth grade, and some more awesome teachers in high school who, you know, I was. I, they they were always there for me, and helping me to stay the course because, you know and Trina, I'll let you expound upon this, but, you know, people read our story and may assume that things were all glamorous. We had some really rough years. There were, you know, third grade was, I know it was really tough. We were in the principal's office <laughs> quite often at, you know, at very young ages. Um, but fortunately, you know, suspension and expulsions weren't, uh, used as widely as they have been used in the last 10 or 15 years but we had some behavioral challenges as a result of, of some things going on at home but like you said dr Gasman I think having those teachers who really stepped in and played the roles of aunts and moms and mentors uh, really helped us get through uh, all you know all of our K- 12 um, schooling Thank
0: you. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think sometimes um, when we think about people's journeys, we think that they're on this perfectly straight path, and that um, we, you know, we never stumble, we never falter. And um, and I think what's important for people to understand is that there's so much learning that comes from the stumbles, and so much learning that comes from even you know our mistakes, right, along mm-hmm. the way, and and that. Um, that we can still achieve success and follow our dreams, even if maybe we get a little derailed here and there. And so I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that part of your journey. Trina, I don't know if you wanted to also comment on that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And Tina, I'm so glad you mentioned what you did because Again, I, I just keep thinking about the folks that may listen to this, the parents or the individuals who are you know, trying to pursue degrees and have had similar challenges that we've had. But one thing that I'll mention and, and that I rarely mention, mm-hmm. um, not out of embarrassment or, or anything like that, it's just it just it, it doesn't typically come up, but I actually ran away from home my junior year of high school, and um, it, it's directly in line with Tina mentioned just throughout our K-12 time frame, there were a lot of things going on. And, um, you know, what I, I did a Facebook post about the Forbes article, and I did mention in the post that, you know, I, I didn't have a 3.0 when I graduated from high school. Um, I really meant that when I said the institutions where I got graduate degrees from or where Tina went to school for undergrad, they they would have accepted me. Academically, I, I was not on par to probably meet the, the requirements to get in. But when I ran away from home my junior year, that was a big reason why my GPA fell so much. The school that I went to out in California, because I went to stay with family, um, I, I struggled. I struggled very much, and then ended up going back to Arkansas and tried to finish out as strong as I could. And and it's you know it's it's this thing of why I'm so passionate about institutions that really value taking care of the whole student. So if we're talking about mentors and teachers, when I attended the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, um, to really build on what Tina mentioned about not ever having a Black teacher, you know, our father, our biological father was never in our lives. And so for me, I went through, father wasn't there. We went K-12, never had really many positive Black male role models. But when I got to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, my department chair and mentor who I still talk to all the time <laughs> to this day, Dr. Colin I, I hope he listens to this, was like that, kind of like the first father figure for me, right? And 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 I, till, till, like even now, reflect on how big of a deal that was towards my overall success as an undergraduate student and then now into um, different aspects of my life and career. So this this conversation around mentors and role models and representation of that, you know, if you're African-American, having those African-American male and female role models is is, is vital.
1: And and we spoke about this a little bit in our interview, um, and Trina's talking about Dr. Colin and I would go visit Trina often <clears throat> at UAPB, and Dr. Colon became like a mentor to me, you know. <laughs> so that's how big of a deal it was to have him in our lives, and I just wanted to note that at the University of Arkansas, I had five Black male professors who um, were, again, you know, this was our, this was my first time. That was my first opportunity to see Black men in that type of professional role, because where we grew up in, in Arkansas, there were no Black male or female dentists, doctors, lawyers. Those individuals did not exist. So for both of us going to these universities was really the first time we were able to see black men in these professional roles. And one of my former uh, mentors, Dr. Charles Robinson, was just named the interim chancellor of the University of Arkansas, the first black male in that role, which is just amazing. It's exciting, but I know the role he played in my life. And so I'm not surprised that he was selected for the role, but I just wanted to make sure we, we stress that, you know, for us being able to see those men in those positions was really, um, inspirational for us. And of course, when I started my PhD program, my topic was actually Black male teachers as a result of the experiences I had with those those um, gentlemen at the U of A.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I think it's incredibly powerful for people uh, listening. Uh, so one of the, the things that we... Um, talked about for the article was uh, the recruitment process for PhD programs, because, you know, Tina, you're in a PhD program. Trina, you went through a PhD program. And as Black women, you noticed a lot of things about the way that universities um, try to attract or, or, quite frankly, don't try to attract Black women. And I'm wondering if um, you know, there will be a lot of people in higher ed listening to this. And can you talk for a bit and please keep it real about what universities should be doing to attract more Black women into PhD programs?
2: I think as a as a faculty member um, at a large minority serving institution and, and also a faculty fellow for a division of diversity, equity and inclusion, as you can imagine, we we talk about this a lot, especially with me being less than I think five, one of only five Black identifying faculty members in my entire college, uh, which is not uncommon for, for engineering, unfortunately. Um, one thing that I keep coming back to, regardless of what type of institution it is, is that leadership has to be very intentional. It, it, Anything that a university wants to do, you have to have leaders, people at the very top that are very serious and intentional about achieving whatever the goal it is. And I I have been on a couple of calls where you've got very, you know, these high up leaders. And I recognize as a junior faculty member, they have a lot of things on their plate. I mean, they do. Let's just be real. They, They have a lot on their plate and i think what it comes down to is this being made a priority everyone understanding why it's a priority and being intentional about giving you know providing the resources and having the people included who can actually help achieve the goal because we'll see sometimes where there there's these initiatives and i kind of look at who's involved on the committee or within the group um and this is not just at my institution it's a, it's across multiple institutions when i talk to other colleagues and you kind of notice that the right people are not in the right places to actually achieve those goals. So I think when it comes to getting more black women uh, interested in in, and involved within uh, PhD programs, there has to be a direct line of communication and priority made from leadership uh, on the campuses with the resources to the people who can actually make it happen.
1: Absolutely, thank you. Tina, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I would just add, and again, we talked about this in the article that, you know, especially when you're at Ivy League and R1 universities where they don't have to recruit, right? They're going to receive several, more applications than they, you know, would ever need. Again, it goes back to intentionality. I think that an effort has to be put forth to recruit. And we're not talking about a heavy, you know, you know, you don't need an entire team to help recruit. Um, What I realized in the last year, my department has had a change in leadership. And when I received an email, you know, from this, this individual, and he said, look, we have a black male student who has applied to the PhD program. He's from Arkansas and I was hoping that you could have a one-on-one with him because he's, you know, a we're we're going to give him an offer, but we really want him to come just to receive that email and see that someone was putting forth the effort to diversify the program. I was more than happy to to help but what i'm what i've noticed is that this was the first time that this happened no one reached out to me and asked me you know to apply to pin um, i had a friend who was in the program who encouraged me to apply and kind of ne- help me navigate the process but in reality like not everyone is going to have those connections and access to the right individual so again i think that the universities have to decide if you really want to If you really want to diversify your program, if equity and inclusion is really important to you, again, I keep posing this question of like, is this really what you want? And if it is what you want, you have to reach out to the individuals or reach out to contacts and say, we're looking to diversify, do you know a black male or black female for this program and could you encourage them to apply? But I have yet to see that really be done. In any program, again, I, I'm not knowledgeable of all programs and their efforts to diversify, but I think a big part, being a PhD student, I think the other part of this equation is once they are there, they have to be supported, because you know I think the Southern Regional Education Board, their research has found that the average. Completion time for a black PhD student is nine years. And the fact that I have a friend and it took them seven years, I I mean, 10 years to finish. I have another friend who's ABD and he's been ABD for seven years. Um, And I have another friend, you know, it took him seven years. I have a list of people I know and it took them seven to 10 years to, to complete a PhD program. Then, you know, the support uh, may not necessarily be there for them to complete on time, and that becomes an unnecessary burden. So, it's I think it's 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 great to focus on recruitment, uh, but we have to make sure that retention piece is there also.
2: And Mary Beth, I I would just add that I do want to make sure we acknowledge and recognize the uh, large, you know, R one, maybe predominantly PWI institutions that have done a great job of. Collaborating and working with um, certain MSIs, for example, HBCUs, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: to create pipelines. Right, Mm -hmm. there are some institutions out there really trying their best to make sure those students who are interested in graduate programs know about their institutions and and their universities, and they've they've done a good job of, of of making sure once those students. Yet there they have support and a couple of them that I will mention is, is Purdue and also Virginia Tech. And that's just for the knowledge that I have. I know that they have put those efforts uh, forth.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. There are people out there doing some good work. Uh, one of the things I was going to say is that um, so according to the National Science Foundation survey of earned doctorates, which is really you know one of the very best sources to learn about who's getting doctoral degrees only 4.4% of doctoral degrees are earned by black women. And, um, and so, you know, of course, uh, we could do so much better. And one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you is, can you tell people, why is it so important to have more black women in PhD programs? Now I, I will admit, like, I know this cause I know, you know, what, what black women offer and bring to the table, but sometimes people don't don't really get why it's so important to have a variety of voices. So why is it so important from your perspective?
2: Uh, This is Trina, and I'll just elaborate on something that I mentioned um, at the end of the article. I believe that this fundamentally goes back to the importance and value of diversity and, and, and uh, diversity um, when it comes to our thought processes and ideas and being innovative, um, I, I think it's vital, right? So it's not just ethnic diversity, gender diversity. Um, it, we're talking about age diversity, cultural mm-hmm. diversity. Um, we, we really need to continue to emphasize just how important that is and highlight the organizations and institutions who have been very successful because they have diversified, right? And they have uh, those, those um, you know, attributes there. You know, I think about individuals who have been very successful in, in different spaces. Like when you look in entertainment, you know, you've got individuals like Oprah and Beyonce. When you look at business, you've got Rosalind Brewer, who I, I'm constantly talking about, um, Spellman graduate, who's now the CEO of Walgreens, you've got these, in, these, these very powerful Black women who have done amazing things in their fields, in their areas, some of them with advanced degrees. Uh, Ursula Burns, you know, I, I could keep going on and on. Mm-hmm. She's an engineer, former CEO of Xerox. And um, these women have done great things. But when it comes to PhDs in research and research across all the different disciplines, and these individuals being the ones speaking on CNN and on the news shows, right, and, and and speaking before policymakers. There are so few Black women, in particular, with PhDs that we don't see that type of representation like we see in all the other fields, right. And I think that's a detriment to so many different aspects of our of the investment of our country. We're talking about climate change, international relations, um, economic development. Uh, We have so few Black women and some other uh, underrepresented uh, groups uh, represented with those uh, credentials that that diversity of thought that we need is not even able to be reached because we don't have the experts in those spaces. I would
1: add um, two things, because Trina talked about this in the article, And of the women who do exist, who have PhDs, I mean, we have to do a better job. And I say we, like as a nation, have to do a better job of lifting those voices and giving them a platform to speak from their perspective. Um, I've become very interested recently in Black women with PhDs in economics. um, And there, there are some out there, a number of them, one with a PhD from Jackson State and as Trina said, when we're watching the news and if we see these, you know, experts talking about the economy or climate change or international relations, we just rarely see women. I rarely see women of color in general, but specifically, I can't tell you when I've seen black women speaking on some of these topics. So I think we also have to do a better job of identifying and locating the women who do exist and giving them that platform because Who knows, you know, what young lady who's currently an undergraduate student or master's student who would be interested or become interested in a PhD program if she saw a woman who looked like her in that position and speaking. And, And I just wanted to add also from a PhD student's perspective of why it's so important to have more black women with PhDs. You know, the academy, you know, being a Ph.D. student and I'm sitting here as a current Ph.D. student, a fourth year. I took 17 courses. And if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Gasman, I had one woman of color. I'm trying to make sure I don't get this wrong. I had one course with a woman of color and that course wasn't even a part of my program of study. I had to petition to take that course. To uh, substitute it for another course because I really wanted to take um, Dr. Harper's School to Prison Pipeline course. And so, you know, that's, and not to say there weren't more courses available, I could have, you know, taken a course with a few of the other. Uh, women of color who were in the school of education, but those weren't a part of my program of study. So we really need to see more black women with PhDs because in these graduate level courses and these college level courses, students need to be able to have experiences learning from black women. Um, I don't think I had any black female professors at the University of Arkansas. Um, (laughs) Like, and just even thinking about this right now, I'm like, yeah, you know, and and I didn't have any at Harvard. Uh, and so this is just, you know, it's shocking for me to even reflect on this right now and realize that I had no black female, you know, at less than three after after high school. And I think that's so important because those are where you build relationships and have good or bad experiences. And I remember one of my semesters when all of my professors were white and male Uh, that it was tough. It was tough to feel like you couldn't open up because you were afraid of being seen as problematic or asking too many questions, you know, and nine times out of 10, I was the only (laughs) woman of color in my in my classes. So, you know, just reflecting on my current experience, that is another reason why it's so important to have uh, more black women in the academy. Thank you. Thank you
0: so much for sharing all of that, too. I I, um, I think it's really helpful for other people. When we talk about uh, when we talk about the Ph.D. and achieving it, it is a bit of a mystery. And for especially if you're from a low income background or a first gen background, I know for me personally, coming from both of those backgrounds, I had absolutely no idea um, I often tell people I, I applied for one PhD program because I didn't even realize you were supposed to apply for multiple ones. And um, I guess one of the things that we talked about when I was um, you know, interviewing you for the article is all the things that sometimes people don't know that end up uh, end up resulting in black women for example ending up taking on too much loan debt right or mm-hmm. uh or not under not understanding kind of how the the whole um funding process or fellowship process works and can you talk a little bit more about that and why it's so essential that we make these things transparent
2: yeah i and i'm 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 trying to figure out where to even begin <laughs> I and I and I struggle with this actually when we especially when we think about the impact that COVID nineteen um has had on uh higher education institutions uh financially and from a resource perspective and, and and just everyday people, right? With as far as jobs and and uh trying to figure out what's the best decision for them uh moving forward. I, I do kind of struggle with this because when you think about a Ph.D. and you you tag that with um, a low income or first generation students, um, it it is tough because one of the big challenges now is that is, is a Ph.D. even worth it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So those questions are being asked. Um, and like you said, Mary Beth, going back to the, the amount of debt that could be collected when students don't have access to the right information Around what fellowships are out there, um, you know, deadlines, pop-ups. Mm-hmm. Some of these mm-hmm. fellowship websites on the university web pages are not up to date. Mm-hmm. External fellowships deadlines seem. To, if you don't have it on your radar, it has already passed. Um, and 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 we have to also remember that a lot of of, of uh, black women, for example, um, typically they're working full time, right, and then they decide okay, I may go get a PhD, and if you're not in one of these, you know, undergraduate research programs where folks are saying, hey, you know, PhD deadlines are coming up, here are some opportunities there. If you're out working in industry, and you don't have access to the resources that inform you about what's out there, you're just, I mean, that could be the value of the PhD what you can do with the PhD, how you can uh, um, get a PhD without having to pay for it. There are a lot of different areas where there seems to be gaps that are, are not allowing us to be able to get these applicants who may be interested because they're missing information from one of those buckets. And um, I, I think it's actually a huge opportunity for someone to try to streamline this I can imagine somebody creating an app or a website or something, right, that says, if you're interested in these different type of PhDs, here are the deadlines for most universities. Here are the deadline. here's the type of fellowships that are out there. But I don't think there's, we've done a great job of creating a central information database for all these uh, different opportunities that help more Black women get PhDs.
0: Yeah, agreed. Agreed completely. Um, so one of the other things I wanted to say is that So, you know, lots and lots of different people listening, listen to these varying viewpoint podcasts. And I know that there's probably some people who are listening who might not be African-American and might not be black women, for example. And I'm hoping that they might be wondering, um, how can I either support or further support black women in higher ed and just across the board? And and I, I guess I'm wondering if you could share, you know, what, what do you think Black women need? What do you think they
1: want? How can others uh, be as supportive as possible? I, you know, I'll say this because I'm currently in a program. I've been thinking about this more lately since we <laughs> interviewed for the, the fourth piece. And when Trina was just speaking about, you know, almost all Black women are working full time. Black women have worked full time since the day we <laughs> set foot in America. Yep. You know, you yeah. rarely, and I mean, there are some very, you know, unique and very limited case uh, examples of like Black women who are stay-at-home moms, et cetera, et cetera, sir, of course. Um, and that is always a choice and an option for Black women. But I think that when she said that, I thought about all of my friends or contacts I know who have PhDs or EdDs who are Black women who were not able to leave work. So their PhDs or EDDs were earned part-time and they had to pay for them, right? And so if people out there really want to help, if they really, again, being intentional, this is what people really want, if you really want to help black women earn PhDs and be able to step away from working that full-time job, we have to rethink this stipend, right? So even though, like in my specific uh, case, my schooling is paid for, I have health insurance, and I receive a small stipend. And that is extremely helpful, right? I would not be in this PhD program if that wasn't on the table. But if I'm being honest, the stipend is just not enough to, you know, at my age, do some of the things that I need to do uh, personally professionally etc and if I had a family i i wouldn't be in the program and so when I think about you know when you're talking about funding and one thing I always tell people and I really hope the listeners uh, can, can take this into take this to heart and this is not just for black women this is for anyone who's first generation or low grew up low income or in poverty and I know Dr. Gasman you and I chatted about this in the past before just because you you know are earning a PhD or you you know earn degrees and you start to make money i try to explain to people that when you when you grow up in poverty and you're first gen Your earning of degrees does not automatically mean everyone around you has now been catapulted into this new, you know, arena because you have. And so one thing Trina and I have always uh, recognized is that as we've earned degrees and, and obtained a little bit more success, our family, most of our family is in the same position that they were when we were children. And right. so you kind of take that responsibility with you of helping family. And so a lot of first-generation college students, even when they make it to the PhD level, are sending money home you know, to family members, are helping family members out. And I could give some really personal stories of financial um, responsibilities Trina and I have taken on over the years. But those things don't leave just because we're earning PhDs. And so if folks really want to be intentional about diversifying this you know, the academy and getting more Black women involved, you know, I do, I personally do believe that first-generation college students, no matter, you know, where they are in their professional careers and lives, should be, should receive a little bit more uh, funding, or that funding should be based upon, you know, your specific situation, and I'll leave with this, I'll I'll leave this question with this example. Um, I entered my program with two other um, young women, and we were we're all around the same age, but one thing I noticed immediately was that, you know, both of them are married, and so they have the support of their husbands, right? Like, I don't know the entire situation. They could have, you know, lots of other things going on, uh, but just from what they disclosed with me, I know that, you know, I recognized early that their support systems, whether it was their parents, their parent-in-laws, right? Like, all of the, you know, helping with this and that and this and that. And I realized, you know, I didn't have those type of support systems. My support system was my mom. And really, since I started college, my support system has been Trina. You know, Trina has kind of supported me when times have gotten tough in my PhD program. And so, again, I think that universities have to consider the fact that, yes, we want to be, you know, we want to have equality across the board, but if we are really talking about equity and going to that next level, some student situations are just different. If I had an underlying health condition, I may need more health insurance or a wider level of coverage, and that's like a whole nother conversation. Um, but these are things that I think we have to start talking about seriously because I think just giving each person the same amount of money sometimes is quite inequitable, but also it just – shows that we're not looking at this from um, a bigger uh, perspective.
2: And Mary Beth, I would just add, because I think Tina did a great job of really breaking that down and giving some examples about the, the financial support, but also maybe this, this idea of um, thinking about support from different perspectives when it comes to first-generation or low-income students and, and of course, Black women that fall into that space. What I would add for, for institutions is to think about the best practices that work with graduating um, students that historically have not pursued or completed these degrees, like Black women. For example, cohort models. Uh, Juan Gilbert at the University of Florida has done an amazing job with recruiting Black PhD students in computer science of all fields, right? And what he's done is built close relationships with HBCUs so that those students have a pipeline into the programs, but they go there together right? There's three or four of them at one time that are in the program together. And most times they start together and they finish together. And they have mentoring programs and support systems in place. So to Tina's point from earlier around making sure once the students are there, they have support is very important. So there are best practices and models out there that institutional leaders can look at that will ensure that the students are um, successful while they're there. And I think that uh, what, the, what, what folks who are, you know, who are not black women and, and maybe not even in academia, you can reevaluate the funding structure, the stipend structure, the time. Should you not be able to get a fellowship just because you're going to school part-time? Mm-hmm. Like, do we really want to increase these numbers or not? So maybe this is a conversation for institutional leaders to talk to their, their um, external funders and state policymakers who decide who gets what fellowships and how much money. Right. So I I think there are definitely some things that external folks can do to help with these, uh, this endeavor. Absolutely.
0: I mean, absolutely. That's some really important advice. So, um, so I know, I know that both of you, you know, just have so much advice. Um, for those coming after you, and I guess the last question I wanted to ask is, um, let's hear some. What what kind of advice do you have for young Black women who are pursuing PhDs and and you know possibly thinking about a career in in um, the academy? Uh, what kinds of advice do you have? And and you know, professional and personal advice. Um, I'm sure people would be really really interested.
1: Trina, I can speak about the. Uh those interested in, and maybe you can talk about the academy. Yeah, go ahead. So for young uh, women, uh, specifically black women, but also just young women in color, first generation uh, college students who are interested in PhD programs. And I was on an APAN panel recently about this. And my advice has been rock solid, (laughs) the same across the board. Identify current students and current faculty members at programs you're interested in and try to build a a support system and a network of support before you even go. So really do your research and find a program that is a great fit for you because you will alleviate and possibly eliminate some of the unnecessary challenges that you will face inevitably as a PhD student if you have that sound support system and structure in place before you arrive, that's my first bit of advice is to make sure this is a place you want to be for four or five years and that you have that that support system there. And, and again, just I think that's the most important thing, doing the research, making sure it's a good fit um, and, and don't give up. And know that the university you're at, like this is for women and girls who uh, women in, uh, who may be currently in a PhD program. I am in a program in which I am the only black student. I've been the only black student in the program all four years that I've been there. There have been no faculty members of color all, throughout the four years. But what I learned very quickly is I can reach out to professors at different universities. So I am readily, you know, I'm speaking to professors at different universities who research similar work uh as my dissertation. So you are not, you know, confined to your university. You can reach out to anyone anywhere and ask for advice or ask for resources. And so uh once you get there just know that you have options and opportunities and that you can you can accomplish a lot while you're there despite what may be going on in your particular program.
2: Yeah, and I would just add I think for anyone that's currently in a Ph.D. program or, um, you know, in a Ph.D. program trying to figure out what they want to do once they're done. um, I don't assume that everybody wants to go into, you know, the academy, um, but also for individuals who are in the uh, the academy or, you know, in, in trying to figure out things, you know, regardless of their position. I think one of the most important things is to to. Have your goals and you know maybe even your the things that you're passionate about, have those in front of you and and constantly revisit those. Uh, and when I say constantly, it could be once every three months, once a month, every year, whatever is comfortable for you. but you know over time, our goals and, and what we're passionate about and what we love and what our priorities are will change for a number of different reasons. and it's always important to have that in front of you. One of the other things I will mention, and this is something that Tina and I are very passionate about, and it's something that for me personally has come to the forefront, um, is this idea around financial literacy and financial management. And I find myself having more conversations with people who are making career moves based off of where they are financially. Um, working jobs, staying in positions that they're really not passionate about, that they don't love. In some cases, they're miserable because of where they are financially. So one of the you know pieces of advice that I would give, especially to current PhD students, is that like if you're paying for school, are there some avenues to help you out, right? So that if you're taking out loans right now, you can cut that or cut it in half, right? Because when you leave, you don't want to have a lot of debt. And so just thinking about what decisions make the most sense when it comes to finances, I think is is very important. And the last thing that I'll say um, is always have mentors and friends in your back pocket. And Tina hit on this a little bit, because whether it's you needing to talk to somebody around your goals, you're thinking about having, you know, doing a career change, you're thinking about either going into a Ph.D. program or dropping out of a Ph.D. program or transitioning into a different program, you have somebody that you can talk to about this. So you don't feel like you're out, you know, on your own trying to make all these decisions. And so um, overall, that's the advice that I would have for, you know, definitely for black women, but for for people in general that may be in that uh, in those one of those positions.
0: Thank you. Thank you for all that good advice. I think it's incredibly helpful. And I I wanted to say uh, thank you so much for talking with me today and for sharing your stories and for all that you contribute. I, I think, you know, for me, having written the interview and just kind of watching um, the various things that you do um, and that you contribute to, I just want to say thank you because um uh, we all we all really have to do our part out there to make life better for for others, and I, I can tell that both of you are doing that. So thanks so much for joining me today.